Sunday, June 4th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It was a week of new candidate names and two GOP heavyweights in Iowa as Republicans fight to see who will take on Democrats for president in 2024. First and foremost, do not run for president of the United States as a Republican against Donald Trump unless you first know how to handle Donald Trump and you have a plan to do so with many contingencies and lots of practice. I'm Kevin Cork. Few could have anticipated the depth to which former President Donald Trump has shaped American jurisprudence, especially at the Supreme Court, where increasingly the power of the government is being challenged. Chief Justice Roberts, Alito, and I think Justice Thomas is the real leader in this area, is Mm. trying to rewrite the balance between the federal government and the state government and narrow the federal government's involvement in all of our lives. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, Fox News confirmed former Vice President Mike Pence plans to run for president and plans to announce that from Iowa this coming week. A super PAC has formed to boost former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and his likely bid for president. Sources have also told Fox News North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is planning to announce a run likely this coming week. Meanwhile, the number one and two in the Republican primary polls were both in Iowa. I think within six months, you're going to see... uh major, a major part of the comeback. Former President Trump was there, but Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was there too and hit back at some of Trump's most recent criticism of him. If you say Cuomo did a better job with COVID than Florida did, first of all, that's not what he used to say. This is like new, like six months ago, he would have never said that, right? He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? And the fight's been pretty tough already. While in Iowa, Trump mocked how DeSantis, or as he calls him, DeSanctimonious, pronounces his own name, DeSantis told a New Hampshire radio talk show host that Trump's jabs are petty, juvenile, and his conduct is one of the reasons he's not in the White House right now. Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who came in second to Trump after the 2016 Republican primaries, told the Fox News Rundown podcast this past week. I think it is basically a two-man race between Trump and DeSantis. And the two of them have already started unloading on each other. I expect it to be a rough and tumble primary. They're going to pound the living daylights out of each other. And and the the voters are going to decide. And and whoever wins the primary, I'm going to enthusiastically support. While DeSantis comes in second in most polls, former President Trump is ahead by double digits, although that hasn't stopped other Republicans from entering the ring, including tech company founder Vivek Ramaswamy, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and talk show host Larry Elder, as other names continue to float out there as possible future candidates. The Republican field for president in 2024 was expanding slowly but surely, and now it seems like it's ballooning. Kellyanne Conway is president of KAC Consulting, a Fox News contributor and former campaign manager and senior counselor to former President Trump. You have the anticipated announcements by former Vice President Mike Pence, former Republican governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and others. And that will bring the tally closer to 10 candidates, all told. So we're going to have a very robust debate, (laughs) beginning with the Fox News debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in middle August. I think competition is great for democracy. It's how this country was founded. It's how we survive and thrive as a nation and, and a democracy. But if you want to stop Donald Trump as a Republican presidential aspirant, you really had two choices. One is you announce for president yourself 
and you go at Donald Trump hammer and tong. You go directly at him and you go after him and you diminish his standing vis-a-vis the voters as the clear front runner. Or your second choice was not to run at all. And the second choice should have been more appealing to some of these later entrants <laughs> because the way to stop Donald Trump is to not diminish the non-Trump vote such that in these winner-take-all contests, Donald Trump is going to have the upper hand. In 2016, there were seven winner-take-all contests in the Republican primary and caucuses. Why is that important? Well, let's look at South Carolina 2016. Donald Trump won about 34 and a half percent of the vote in South Carolina, but he won every single one of the 50 delegates. Mm. Everybody else got zero, including Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, who together split 50% of the vote, but they got zero delegates. This time, instead of seven winner-take-all states, in 2024, there are 17 winner-take-all states. And that's really a benefit to President Trump if he continues to be the front runner. I was, you kind of just touched on my next question, which is because you've run campaigns, I'm wondering sort of what the calculus is for some of these folks who are jumping in. Are they figuring things like, well, the former president, as dominant as he is in the polls, has a host of legal issues he will have to be grappling with? Is it look at the polls with independent voters or more moderate voters with the former president? Um, doesn't necessarily do as well at this stage with that crop of voters. What, what are they sort of calculating as they make these decisions to run? Well, they calculate that they're the best person to be president of the United States. That has to be your first and foremost calculation. And you don't get to that calculation, Jessica, by sitting down with some big yellow legal pad and adding up the pluses or minuses and coming out with more pluses. You just feel it and you know it. And you Mm -hmm. think your agenda is the one that aligns with Americans' needs and the voters' uh, desires at that particular moment. They are, I think many of these candidates are banking on either being the foil or the substitute for Donald Trump. Should he falter? Should he not outrun all of his legal woes or for any other reason, withdraw from the race, even though he was the first one to announce over six months ago? Uh, The second calculation many of these other Republicans not named Donald Trump is making is that they can be the alternative to Ron DeSantis. Hmm. So some of them are trying to take out DeSantis to then be the person who goes one-on-one against Donald Trump. And that's tough for DeSantis because he's going to take it from all sides. He cannot count on some of these other Republican aspirants to help him be the alternative to Donald Trump. They want to be the alternative to Donald Trump. And I think DeSantis particularly is in a sour spot, not a sweet spot for that and, and other reasons. But that's their calculation that somehow Donald Trump won't make it. Uh, we know what happens with Donald Trump Look, anything can happen. This is politics. This is America in 2023, 2024. But the fact is, Jessica, that every time someone says this is the last lane for Donald Trump, this is his final hurrah, he can't outrun this, this is the one that's going to sink him, they've always been wrong. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the back and forth between Mr. DeSantis and and Mr. Trump? I I know after the latest one, right, is that the former president mocked DeSantis and however he's supposed to pronounce his name. And then DeSantis came back and DeSantis has tried not to right, um, to respond too often, but he's he's sort of amping up the responses now. And he responded by saying this is juvenile and petty and that this kind of conduct is why the former president is no longer president. Does DeSantis fight back harder soon? What's your sort of, I guess, expectation of this fight? First and foremost, do not run for president of the United States as a Republican against Donald Trump unless you first know how to handle Donald Trump. (laughs) And you have a plan to do so with many contingencies and lots of practice. And it doesn't seem to me that Governor DeSantis has done that. I'm not sure that anyone else has done that or could fully do that. 
The reason I say it is if I were Ron DeSantis, I would have ignored Trump all along. It's hard to do. Very few people have mastered that skill. Everyone seems obsessed with him. He's probably still the most talked about individual and search term in our nation. But DeSantis made a big mistake by wasting six months between his monster victory by 19 points in November and until May or June in this way. Instead of allowing himself to be seen and positioned as the alternative to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis should have said, listen, folks, I'm the alternative to Joe Biden. And that's why I'm running. And he should have stuck to being the alternative to Joe Biden. That's the better contrast for him. That's the better play for him. Because Ron DeSantis would have transported himself to many voters into a general election scenario. And then you say, well, it's really amazing. It's day 242 of Ron DeSantis ignoring Donald Trump and going after Joe Biden. And he tries to do that a little bit now with Biden. But the number one most popular question Ron DeSantis receives from the voters and from interviewers in the media is about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he's doing a great job. He, he, it sounded like he was ignoring him for a while and now he's going full whole hog against Donald Trump. And if you're going to do that, you can't sound like Twitter and the New York times and Washington post. You can't attack Trump the same way they are. And it's, you can't really attack him from the right. Although he's trying to about Fauci and vaccines and the lockdowns. The fact is there's ample tape of governor, DeSantis praising Fauci in March of 2020. There's ample videotape of him shutting down Florida, telling people not to go to the beach, wear a mask. That's all fine. I think the better argument for DeSantis is not, I did not lock down Florida because he did. What he should say is, I was one of the fastest governors to reopen my state. That's the better mm -hmm. argument for DeSantis. So in politics, you can't say things that aren't true and not, not expect to be called out on it. But again, he's uh, speaking of juvenile. It just seems if your argument against Donald Trump is, oh, what he said is ridiculous and, and and petty, and that's not a substantive rejoinder. the The real challenge for Ron DeSantis and every other Republican running against Donald Trump is as follows: On the one hand, to prevail, you must attack Donald Trump. On the other hand, you must attract Trump's voters, mm -hmm. and so it's very difficult to do. And look, these polls can change over time. Obviously, President Trump has a dominant lead over everyone in the early states nationally and even in their own states. He's beating Sununu in New Hampshire. He's beating DeSantis in Florida. He's uh, beating the others, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott in South Carolina. Any of that can change, Jessica. It's only June of 2023. But I predict if they all go, if they use the first presidential debate to go after Trump, 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 and not explain who they are and what their vision is, they're not going to be able to compete with Trump's record of accomplishment as president. And the fact that many voters right now are saying, despite everything else I don't like, maybe I want more insights and fewer insults from Donald Trump. But you know what? I like his personality. I like his policies because he's tough and he's strong and he's resolute. And I can look past everything else to get the guy back in the job who already did the job better than Joe Biden. And I'll finish this particular piece of the interview, Jessica, by telling you what I tell audiences routinely, which is eyes on the prize. Joe Biden is president of the United States. He already has that job. It's difficult to dislodge a sitting president. This is not going to be easy, even against somebody so obviously politically and physically feeble as Joe Biden. Eye on the prize. That guy has the job. He doesn't deserve the job. Two thirds of Democrats don't want him to pursue a second term. I'm not even sure why Joe Biden wants that job. He and his vice president are incompetent. The country has no confidence in their competence. They need to leave. They need to be a one-term administration. 
And I do tell people, make sure that is mostly what comes out of your mouth, is that mm-hmm. Joe Biden has the job, doesn't deserve the job, needs to be relieved of the job. Talk to me briefly about woke. It seems like a lot of the Republican candidates are focused on that, maybe none more so than Ron DeSantis. It's a real big focal point of any speech he, he gives, not just in the context of Florida, but as president, he's talking about, you know, fighting what he sees as, as woke. Is there a line one shouldn't cross when talking about woke based on any polling data we've seen on this? Or is it more about, kind of to your earlier point, striking a balance and maybe talking about things that you perceive to be as woke, but also talking about the economy and other things? Yes, I've said for a very long time on Fox News that Governor DeSantis does too much woke and too much COVID. And he overdoes, he overdoes those to the point where we don't know what his economic plan is. I have no idea what he would do on energy independence. He has not made the case strongly to people that he's got the foreign policy chops or national security bona fides in what is an increasingly dangerous and threatening world. And so if you, I, here's a good example. I thought what Ron DeSantis did was brilliant when he said, look, K through third grade, no way, no way, no how. Children, and that's what they are. Children should be exposed to sexually explicit content like this. I'm going to do something about it. And he and the state legislature did. But then he couldn't just take yes for an answer and do a victory lap. He had to extend third grade to 12th grade. And then he lost a lot of people, including me, because there are kids in, in, our, in our country who at 16, 17, 18 feel uncomfortable in their own bodies, have questions. And for some of those people, Jessica, for some of those kids, the only person they can turn to is a teacher or an administrator. And an eight-year-old and an 18-year-old are not the same. I've had both. I've had four. <laughs> but, and so they're not the same. And so he's taken to an extent where he talks about over Memorial Day, Ron DeSantis, who was a man in uniform, missed a tremendous opportunity to give a really strong and compelling and uplifting message about Memorial Day. Instead, he talked about the woke military. Mm. Uh, He still talks about COVID. Show me 10 Republican voters who want the 2024 Republican presidential nomination to be decided on COVID. Nobody wants to talk about COVID anymore. And so I know why he's doing it. He wants to prove that he had a better you know, vision than Trump, et cetera. But it's easy to go back in time and remember how afraid everybody was. I but was is he trying to do the instincts? Is he trying to say, like, look at my instincts? My instincts were right to, oh, you know, end the lockdown, move forward, you know, ignore some of this advice. And is that does that strike a chord with the voters when you say, look, just a couple years ago, I was the one with the right instincts? Sure. But he doesn't say that. He says he never shut down Florida, which is a lie. Uh, um, he did shut down the state. He just opened early. And also in Florida, COVID came later because of the weather there. Their phase of COVID came later. I think that he can continue to say that, but he hasn't yet converted. Instead of attacking Trump on it, I would, if I were Ron DeSantis, I would be converting that very good story about my governance in my executive leadership. And as you say, Jessica, correctly, my quote, instincts in Florida, I'd be converting that into what I would do. Where's my vision piece for 2025 on as president of the United States? He doesn't do that. He's kind of stuck arguing about what happened in 2020. Voters don't want to talk about the past. They want to talk about the future. I say the same thing about Donald Trump. Nobody wants to talk about the 2020 election. They want to talk about the future, not the past. But I can say the same to Ron DeSantis. Your COVID message is stuck somewhere in mid-2020, whereas you should take what you see as an asset and say, that's why when I'm Mm. president beginning in 2025 for eight years, 
I will do X, Y, and Z. Let's talk about the Democrats. The Fox News poll had Biden with a 42% approval rating. As you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. came away with, I think it was nearly 20% in a recent poll. And as you just noted, there were other polls that, that have Democratic primary voters not necessarily that interested in a second term for President Biden. What do you think happens on the Democrat side? I mean, theoretically, in 16 months, as even if the president says, I'm running again, that could change too. It could definitely change. And people saw him fall again, you know, at the Air Force. And, you know, Joe Biden is president and the fear of Donald Trump being president again makes otherwise logical, reasonable people say and do the most regrettable things. You know, his staff like, oh, he's fine. He's totally fine. Jessica, he's not fine. Everybody can see Biden with their own two eyes. He's not fine. You don't need to be a doctor. You need to have eyeballs that work. And same thing with Harris. You know, she's got the lowest approval rating of a vice president in history. She's earned that. It is not sexism, racism. It's eyesight and hearing. We're paying attention to her, and she scares us as a potential president. That is why two-thirds of Democrats, Democrats, don't want Joe Biden to run. And that is why up to about 35%, let's call it a third, plus of Democrats right now support someone else. These are people who voted for Joe Biden last time. And they're saying, I want Robert Kennedy Jr. I want Marianne Williamson. And it's why the DNC refuses to allow them all to debate Joe Biden. Think about that. Democracy at its very basic level demands that we have our candidates debating so that we, the voters, free of charge, can access those candidates and be able to poke the fruit and decide for ourselves, you know, what we like and what we don't. Who's the person best able to run the country and who's the person who best represents and reflects my concerns as a voter? And so I think Kennedy's got something strong going on there just because he's not Joe Biden. And it's very fascinating because he's going to be anti-vax. So he'll hit both Trump and Biden. And he's also got some other views on the environment. I think that call into question Biden's bona fides on an issue that very much animates the left in this country, particularly young people on the left. So this White House seems to bury its head. They've got like this ostrich effect on almost everything. They're wrong to not take seriously these intra-party challenges. Um, and, I'll, and I'll put a fine point on it for you. In 2020, you had a bunch of clowns going up against Donald Trump, uh, some guy named Joe Walsh, former congressman. Mm-hmm. It's a joke and, and he got nowhere. But people took him seriously. You know, this one reporter at the New York Times, he writes a lot of silly puff pieces. She had to go follow Joe Walsh around and write these pieces about him. And, oh, we'll take him seriously. The guy didn't even have like a half a percent. He was an asterisk. Now you've got, you've got Robert Kennedy Jr. with one-fifth, one in five Democratic votes. You have Marianne mm-hmm. Williamson at about 8% in some polls. And nobody will write about them. Nobody will take them seriously. So, listen, ignoring them won't make them go away. I think it's a really rich and active and, and evolving story on the Democratic side that you are covering, but very few people are. Kellyanne Conway, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. Take care. With a tip of the hat to composer Aaron Copeland, the latest block of decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court didn't offer much fanfare for the common man. But even as major decisions loom this fall, an unmistakable pattern is emerging from the bench. This Glacier case is kind of interesting, Kevin, not because of the specific what can unions do, what can employers do in a strike, although the facts are really interesting, but about the bigger picture about the proper balance between the federal government and the state government, which is running through a lot of the cases 
at the Supreme Court right now. John Yu is a Cal Berkeley law professor, former deputy assistant attorney general, and author of the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. The facts of this case are kind of funny. This is a cement company. It's got those cement trucks you see on the road all the time. I've always wondered why those trucks have those spinning balls in the back. And if you read the facts of this case, you learn that when you mix cement, you have to keep it moving. The minute it stops, it starts to harden. So what happened in this case is that the strikers, who are the truck drivers, put the cement in the truck, and then they left the trucks and said, now we're going on strike. And so the court said, that's not covered by the right to strike. Any of that cement that's lost or the trucks that are damaged, that's not part of the right to strike. That's destroying the employer's property. And so federal labor law is not going to protect you. The employer can sue the union in state court in Washington. That's the holding of the case. The bigger picture, though, is the Supreme Court here, eight to one, saying federal law should be modest. Let the states take care of destruction of property. Let the states take care of violence that might come out of the strike. Federal law will protect your right to strike. But what the court says is federal law is not going to go farther and protect all the damage you cause in a strike. Can I ask you about that, uh, John? Is this sort of a tone and tenor to the new Roberts court? And I say the new Roberts court, meaning post-Trump, giving more deference to the states. Am I misreading that or is that your sense? No, Kevin, I think that's right. As you know, I've got this book coming out in a few weeks called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. And in that, we have a whole chapter explaining how the new Trump judges, joining with Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, Alito, and I think Justice Thomas is the real leader in this area, is mm-hmm. trying to rewrite the balance between the federal government and the state government and narrow the federal government's involvement in all of our lives and restore the Constitution, I think, to what framers originally intended, which is that the states would be the primary government for most of our daily activities in life. I love the tagline, presidents come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. And that really does say (laughs) a lot about really how people view the court. And I understand it's gotten more controversial, perhaps, than the justices certainly would like, and maybe those of us who really love and study the law would have liked, but we are where we are for a reason. And I'm just curious if you get the sense that the justices are okay with this. Do they view this as part and parcel to their service, to their country, to their defense of jurisprudence and the law? Kevin, you make an excellent point, which is that these are issues and fights that have gone on since the founding of the Republic. You know, our book talks about what happened in 1789 when the Constitution was ratified and first started. You already have fights about the proper role of the federal government. Could the federal government create a national bank? Could it create a federal reserve, even though the text doesn't say so? Ever since then, we've been fighting about it. We've been studying. You and I have been studying it, talking about it. And it's not going to end. As you say, we're in a period now where I think We have for 80 years had a very powerful, large federal government. And you could say the Roberts court and the Trump appointments, what they're doing is they're starting the swing of the pendulum back towards something that's more of a balance between the federal and state governments. But it's not over this term. You know, this term has a lot of important decisions about this, but it's going to it's a process that's going to keep continuing in the years to come. I think that will be the defining issue of 
the Roberts Court when we, you and I, when we're old in the retirement home talking about the Supreme <laughs> Court, and we look back, we're going to say that Roberts Court, their defining issue was federalism. Absolutely right. Now, I want to ask you, too, because obviously the court weighing in on the Clean Water Act, I get the sense, John, that finally, and maybe I'm tipping my hand just a bit, but finally, the judicial is pulling power back from the executive. It seems like it had gotten too far afield. Uh, what's your sense on how the uh, high court weighed in on the Clean Water Act recently? I, I think you read it right, Kevin. This is a case called Sackett. I should disclose I'm on the board of what's called the Pacific Legal Foundation, which was the lawyers representing the Sacketts in their long quest to be able to build a house on a property they bought on some empty land that's a few hundred yards from a lake in Idaho. And so what happened here is, as you say, Kevin, the court is really saying we're not going to let, I wouldn't say the executive broadly, but we're not going to let administrative agencies oh. hear the EPA just in the case before us, the NLRB. Sorry for all the abbreviations, but that's the way our government works. And the court said, we're not going to let an agency take a law from Congress and leverage it into the power to regulate all anything that touches the water in the whole country. Instead, as you say, Kevin, the court is saying if the Congress wants to try to regulate not just navigable waters, which Congress does in the Clean Water Act, with all the land touching navigable waters, or even temporary waters caused by rain or flooding, or even the land touching the temporary waters. So these are all things the EPA has said. The court has said, we want Congress to clearly say so. We're not going to let the agencies that right get their power from how broad these laws are to just unilaterally keep broadening and broadening their reach without any clear authority from Congress. And let me tie this to the Glacier case, Kevin. Again, you see in both cases, the court saying, we're going to restrain the power of the federal government. It's not like the doomsday scenario here in the press that this is the end of environmental protection. The states are still around. They still have the power to regulate land and the waters and their territories. It's just that the federal government doesn't have to regulate everything. That's exactly the argument that people made coming out of Dobbs. It's not as if... There is a federal mandate. You know, this is a state issue. Let your state decide. And we have legislatures to do just that. Um, speaking of uh, maybe it's a hot button issue for some, I think it's a bit of a curiosity. It's probably the headliner. And I know you and I have had a chance to discuss this. But if I could take sort of a brush at the affirmative action case coming mm. before the high court, how do you see that if you were to predict? And I know you never know exactly. Sometimes you get a sense, though, of how the questions go, maybe that is sort of coloring how uh, justices may lean. Uh, what's your take on that, John? So first, let me say, Kevin, this is one of those areas where I don't think you're going to see the court defer to states or defer to universities or school districts. Of course, the Constitution still requires some things to be national, like our rights. Freedom of speech is one. Here's another one. Right to be treated as individuals without regard to race. That's right. And in this case, I would be shocked, I'm utterly shocked, if the Supreme Court allowed Harvard and the University of North Carolina to continue to use race when they decide who to admit. Now, I'm, you know, I'm a university professor. I'm inside, as it were, the belly of the beast. I see how far all these diversity initiatives are going. But I think the court is going to say, 
that business is over with. You know, Chief Justice Roberts, he's been very clear. He said, how did we ever get into the sordid business of dividing ourselves and classifying ourselves by race? I would expect, given the votes in past affirmative action cases and given what the justices have already said, and as you said, Kevin, reading the tea leaves of the oral argument, I, I got to think this court will strike down the use of race. That doesn't mean you can't use as colleges and universities other kinds of factors like income, for example, to try to help the disadvantaged. What the court is saying is that the 14th Amendment, our constitution prohibits the use of race given the terrible history our country has had with race. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let me uh, sort of add to that. Are the litigants, um, are they due compensation? I know it may be a, a bridge too far, but I have to say, if I feel like I was an Asian student and I was trying to get into Harvard and I felt like I was disenfranchised by the university, I would want to make them pay. Is that a bridge too far? Uh, that's a great question, Kevin. I mean, most of the focus is on stopping the use of race in the future in these admissions programs. But that's a very good thorny question, which is what is going to be the compensation due? We've never really gotten the compensation due to the individuals. For example, could courts say, well, admit them now? It's hard to ask for that. So maybe you could say the courts will require Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill to provide uh, damages. For example, what college did they get into? Did it constrict their employment opportunities? Who knows? That's a really hard job that's going to go. One point, and it's the same point you made in the previous set of cases, Kevin, this is not the end of the story. This might just be, right? It's not like the beginning of the end, as Churchill said. It's the end of the beginning. Even though you say universities have to be neutral and not use race with regard to missions, there's still a lot of thorny questions that are going to have to be resolved going forward for the next several years. Author of the new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. As they say, presidents come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. Professor John Yu, always a pleasure, my friend, and we certainly appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, we'll keep an eye on the many Republican candidates planning to announce their campaigns for president. And Congress has multiple hearings on the calendar, including one to examine the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.